Hello, hello, Leah Peaky here. Today's guest is here to splash a few buckets of color on your data visualizations and data stories. Stay tuned to find out who's holding down the fort on the Present Beyond Measure Show, episode 70. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics, visualizations, and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Hey, my listener, and welcome to the 70th episode of the Present Beyond Measure show. It's the only podcast at the intersection of presentation, data visualization, storytelling, and analytics. This is the place to be if you're ready to make maximum impact and create credibility through your thoughtfully presented insights and ideas. So this is my update of the moment, but you may know that I am in the midst of publishing my first book. I'll be sharing all kinds of news and updates here, as well as a few sound bites and bits from the book. Some will be in the book, some might end up on the cutting room floor, so you can get a sense of what the book holds in store for you. So update, Uh, gosh, I am heavy into the book cover design phase, and this is just so fascinating for me because... Design is a huge part of what the book is actually going to teach. And I'm realizing just how much goes into that very simple cover that you see in that bookstore, where everything from the type and the colors and the layout and the iconography or the graphics, everything is so carefully selected to support that overall through line and theme of the title and subtitle but intrigue you just enough to make you have to pick it up and start reading. It's really a fascinated area of design that I've never delved into, but it definitely speaks to the heart of communicating visually. So that's the update for now. I'm still heavy in editing, but everything's going so great. And if you aren't on my list already, you can join at leahpika.com slash the book for an exclusive news, updates, goodies, all kinds of details you won't get anywhere else. So the summer has wound down. We are starting to see the transition to fall, which isn't my favorite time of year, even though I love the changing of the leaves and the cozy sweaters and puffy boots. I am not a huge fan of what comes after that. I'm definitely more of a summer person. My constitution is really not meant for the hard, cold winter, but it is about accepting that the seasons change and time goes on. And hopefully everyone is making the transition smoothly back into school and heading into holiday and all of that good stuff. In terms of speaking, if you want to get up close and personal with me, I'll be speaking at the amazing Measure Summit virtual conference. It's starting September 28th, and it's going to feature talks on all things digital measurement with speakers like my friends Simo Ahava, Michelle Kiss, and Julius Federovicius. The tickets are my favorite price, free. So register at leahpika.com slash measure summit. Be sure to let me know you're coming. Drop me a note on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear that you're going to be there. 
As usual, I'm excited for today's guest, but particularly why this person represents a sort of side tour that we're taking into a specific area of visual design and communication. It's one of my favorite areas, but it's not a place where I've gotten to play around with too much on the show. And I gave you a hint in the intro, but stick around because we're going to dive in. All right. Hello, everyone. Let's welcome today's guest, who is an expert in the field of computer-generated visualization and a consultant who specializes in applying artistic color theories to visualization and digital media, a very special subject matter expert. She published a book on applying color theory to digital media and visualization and has taught color tutorials at the Premier Graphics Conference, ACM SIGGRAPH, and the leading visualization conference, IEEE Viz. She has consulted and lectured on applying color theory to visualization with the Stanford University Visualization Group and has just presented in a whole bunch of wonderful, interesting places. And as of 2020, she began writing on applying color theory to data viz for Nightingale, the journal of the Data Visualization Society and a medium publication. So please help me welcome the latest guest in my superstar women in analytics spotlight, Teresa Marie Rhine. Hello. Hi, it's so nice to be with you today. Yes, I know we've been trying to make this work for some time, and I'm so glad we were able to meet today. And as a person who has really been bitten by aspects of the data visualization world, especially color in particular, I'm just so excited to bring your very unique perspective to the show today. Thank you. So everyone loves an origin story. We're going to dive into you know what you do, but Everyone loves to hear, how did you fall into this very specific aspect of data viz? I will be pleased to tell you that I've been colorizing since I was five years old. (laughs) Maybe most of the people listening to this have been coloring since they've been five years old, too. But I got into it because the Macintosh, when it first started as a baby computer back in the 1980s, did not have color. And the only way to produce color was there was a way the technical geniuses of the Macintosh had some software that showed potential colors like Bs for blue, C for cyan, and for magenta. And they had me colorizing in that particular situation for them. Then I became well known as a colorization person. And then when visualization opened up as a field, scientific visualization, I was at the Environmental Protection Agency and the software was by numbers. At that particular time, you didn't have a user interface. You had a bunch of code, and you had to put RGB values. And it was my job because I have very good color memory. It was my job when they got it right in black and white to colorize. And then I became well-known for it, and eventually I wrote a book. (laughs) So that's how it all came into being because I taught everybody else how to do it. That is incredible. So this lifelong love of color led to a specialization in color before data visualization really opened as a field that was acknowledging the role of color. Do I kind of have that right? You got it. Wow. That's pretty amazing. You're talking to a woman that has been to every single IEEE Viz conference. (laughs) Oh, wow. So I truly am a pioneer from that standpoint. 
I began and my talents and my color memory was appreciated in the very early days. And then eventually I wrote a book. That is incredible. So it's amazing because oftentimes when I'm training people in this field to present information, color is often lost as a tool for conscious choice. It's often whatever the tool has put on as a default, anything like that is often what you see how color is manifested in the way data is presented. And it's amazing to think that a whole person's livelihood is structured around that. So for you, what is the scope of building a color scheme for data storytelling and visualization? How is it used as a tool that you think people might be missing right now? Okay. So color theory is based in an area that artists have done forever. And there's a thing called color harmony. And there are some rules in color harmony. There's monochromatic, which is one color. And then you, sh- you have either a little bit of gray a little bit of white is the tint, a little bit of gray is a tone, a little bit of black is a shade, and you can make a color scheme. And that's a very common color scheme that we often see in visualization, where people are taking one color and sequentially progressing the color across it. Then there's a thing called diverging color schemes in data visualization. And in terms of color harmony, that is something called complementary color harmonies and on the color wheel depending on what kind of color wheel you have, because you can have a red, green, to blue color wheel, which is what most of us use in visualization because we're in RGB color space, what we see on the screen. The colors that are complementary to each other, we choose. So for red, that would be cyan. And then you can build a diverging scheme out of that, whereas your middle color is a neutral color like uh, white or maybe a yellow. And then your diverging data may go from red into that white or uh, cyan into that white, and you see how the data changes over time. So those would be the types of approaches I would recommend using in terms of trying to understand. Now, one of the important things to sort of understand about color harmony and visualization is that you can take a diverging color scheme and actually kind of lie with the visualization. Here's what I mean. If you go out to Cynthia Brewer um, developed a tool called Color Brewer that a lot of people use. It's a free tool. You can find it on the web. And if you go out and you get her sequential color scheme and you apply it to your visualization, but your data set was marketing data and it was about various sales data from five different areas. But you put in a sequential data set, it looks like the data is transitioning from one geographic area to the next geographic area over five steps. But that's not what's happening. What they are is they are five independent color steps. So you want to use color harmony, which would be an analogous color scheme to develop it. But what you can easily do is show a connection in the data that did not exist. (laughs) And you thought you were doing it right because you say, well, that was in color brewing. It looked like the right thing but it wasn't the right thing at all. So that's where understanding color can become very important. So not just blindly applying some other framework or tool that someone's created out there without understanding the actual mechanics of how humans interpret this information, right? And I think there are a lot of data visualization choices where this happened. One of my favorite examples being the use of dual axis charts where they have two different scales, where when two different data sets that are not related and are on different scales, when they intersect 
or don't, there's a meaning created there, a meaning of causation or correlation that isn't actually true. So I have actually not thought of how color can create that same sort of misdirection. It's really helpful. Same thing. And then there's a very common issue in uh, the color visualization field called the rainbow color map. And that is Newton's original rainbow colors. It turns out that those colors actually are not equally. They're not perceptually uniform. So if you just blindly apply the rainbow color map, you're going to be sensitive to particular zones. So it's been shown like yellow is a little more intense in the rainbow color map than blue. So you might put a value looking at it that's not really there. Perceptually, your eye sees it and you perceive that to be an important value. And you say, oh my gosh, that's an important thing that's happened here. And it might not numerically have significance at all. So there's a whole lot of papers and research trying to understand how to build perceptually uniform color maps, which I think is actually a future direction of trying to build perceptually uniform color maps to address this as more and more people spend a lot of screen time. I see so much what you're saying because obviously based on the culture that we live in, we have certain associations and meanings around color, but our brains are also attuned to responding to certain colors faster than others, right? And it can, they can even change our moods and everything. And oftentimes I would look at a chart being presented and there would be red and my brain would say, oh, red alert, pay attention, when that actually wasn't even the core focus of the graph. However, the subconscious processing that I'm doing is assigning those meanings. And that's really interesting around maps, especially when we talk about sort of the the chloropleth maps, I believe, where it's the actual shapes of the states versus one that's a hextile where each state is represented as an equal area, but it's in a general spatial positioning. But the fact that California is so large in Texas that naturally a color there is going to draw people's attention just from the area. You've got it. So if you want to actually give Rhode Island a chance, <laughs> you might want to change your color map and use the color knowledge we were just talking about that so people see the Rhode Islands coming out. Depends on what kind of data set you've got and what you're doing with. But you might want to be very sensitive to the color or a designer might want to do that. You've got it. That's exactly what it's all about. This is really fascinating. And I think it speaks to a world that is invisible to so many of us to see they're just colors. What could possibly there be so much to learn about that? But I know you have mentioned to me your 10 rules about colorizing a data visualization and, and your book. I'm curious if you can go into your book a bit and whether it speaks to these rules. Well, what's really funny is I wrote my book before I did that particular article. My book is actually goes over a lot of the fundamentals of color theory and how it, it applies to visualization because there wasn't another book out there when I came out with it. Maureen Stone had written an earlier book, but my book is very applied and it also goes over how to use specific color tools. So I actually was very pleased. I wrote my book and then it was reviewed by, there's a whole lot of color societies and I had the color <laughs> society review it. And tell me whether I had described those things. I described a guy called Munsell. And Munsell is a very important 
player in terms of perceptual uniformity. And I went through all of his theories that went back. I was very lucky in terms of publishing the book because it was like in the late 1800s, uh, early 1900s. So I had no copyright issues with regards to that. But I published the, that material in the book. And I wanted to show, uh, I went and did Joseph Albers. And I took the, an app that Joseph Albers, Yale University, has taken Joseph Albers' very classic book, The Interaction of Color. And I was my book came out just when the Interaction of Color app for the iPad came out. And I showed how to use it. And I s- discussed how to relate to that. I was very fortunate that Yale University allowed me to do that. I created my own color examples from the app. So they were very pleased that somebody was actually using their app. And then I went and I talked to Pantone that normally does not live in the visualization community. Pantone hmm. is not you very would, often. <laughs> you would think that that was a natural intersection. Pantone does computer graphics. I mean, they talk about that, but they actually don't live in terms of data visualization community. And I showed how to use the Pantone Studio and now the Pantone Connect app and how you would use those particular things. What's really funny is a lot of people who are involved with universities know Pantone colors. Like, I'm going to give you a particular Pantone color, red 201C. So I'm an alumnus of Stanford University, and that's cardinal red. 201C is cardinal red. And most athletes, for example, need to match their colors. Professional athletes, they know need to know what the color, specific Pantone color is, because they need to match their outfits. Oh, that makes sense. That they're going to be wearing and those types of things. Same thing for university professionals who are at a level where they're representing the university. They need to match those colors. And so they know their particular colors and how to match for that. Because actually, Pantone does deal with the fashion industry. And so they know their, their values and those types of things. So I used it, Pantone started as a company, however, in terms of how to improve color output. They were totally based on the example I use in my course is imagine you're the Beatles and you're publishing your yellow submarine poster. And you're trying to tell the people in California who are going to print your album cover what the yellow is. Pantone came into being because it's a numeric system and you could call out that number and people would look on their chart. And no, oh, that yellow, not sunshine yellow, <laughs> meant nothing. Sunshine yellow. What's sunshine yellow in London versus sunshine yellow in Los Angeles? That means nothing. But you call out that particular Pantone uh, color and it matches to that. So all these printers all around the world have Pantone inks that they add because if you try to do cyan, magenta, and yellow printing, it's going to be very dull. What you see on your screen all of us have had this happen to us. What we saw on our screen looked really nothing, flat, <laughs> terrible. Right. Nothing like what we expected in terms of when we printed it out. And Pantone exists for you to be able to match your inks to get that same type of color. It's called spot color. And they you use the Pantone colors. So Pantone has an app out there today called Pantone Connect that allows you to do that. And I discussed how you would want to use that in the visualization community because a lot of data visualizations do go from digital to print. You have to print it out because you you get into a situation where you need to be able to do that. So Pantone, are they what we think of as hex colors? Because I know like for me, when I think of Pantone, I, I, I was in a role in my early career where 
Pantone was important for printing marketing materials and, and things like that. Now, what I think of is when Pantone came out of the official prints purple <laughs> years ago, where it was like that representative color. But are they hex values or are they somehow more precise in triangulating very specific tones, hues, shades? Pantone has its own Pantone management system, and you can buy books. And of course, they'll happily sell you books of their <laughs> management system. And people who are in, they give seminars all the time. They even have a color system for makeup. They have a color system for fashion design. They have a color system for hosiery. They have a color system for all kinds of areas, and they'll give it to you. And I like what that 201C means coated paper, U means uncoated paper. In other words, that's the Pantone library. Now, Pantone realized that when it web hacks came afterwards, the web 3D consortium developed the web hex codes. And those are the hashtags. Now, the, I'll give you that Stanford color I told you about. Hashtag A8C1515 is the web hex value. Now, that's the value that most of us, in terms of working on the in the digital media, call by our, our hex colors. And that's what the... World Wide Web Consortium controls actually those colors and how they're set together. They're called hex values. There's a whole system that I cover it in my course, but that is independent. But what Pantone does is it tells you, okay, this is my Pantone management system. This is what your hex value close approximation because they're two independent systems. But most of us today match according to a hex value. Now, interestingly, that's different from an RGB value that a lot of people who are in computer graphics may use. So you kind of have to transfer between both of them and discussing it. So you need to know your RGB value. If you're going to print in CMYK, cyan, magenta, yellow, and keep black, you need to know your CMYK values. If you need to know your web hex values, it can get complicated. Then there's CIE Lab, which is another standard that a lot of people like to use because it's very good for calibration. In other words, you and I want to communicate across in our worlds, but your display system may be different from my display system. So we work together a lot. We might work together in CIE Lab, color space, where I would give you those values and you would match up with it on your monitor and your display, and we would have the same color footprint. It gets really complicated. See, it we can some, go deep. <laughs> most people just to know their web hex values, and their RGB values is enough, you know. Yeah, you know, people are like, what happened to just cornflower blue? But, you know, I, I can see it's all about consistency as well. And I've absolutely seen what happens when a color looks a certain way. Like I will translate my presentation graphics bar chart to a neutral gray, and then I'll display it and it looks like it's purple on screen, except for my highlight color, which feels washed out. And it's really interesting. Like you have to take into account different displays and think about the different ways it can come across, right? So this is really fascinating. So you have these 10 rules for colorizing data visualization. I was wondering if you could touch on some of those rules, kind of walk us through. Well, I'm going to give you a couple of them. And first thing is to know your particular, whether you have a, a data set that's sequential, diverging, or categorical as a color scheme, because that becomes really important in selecting your color schemes. Sequential is data that's ordered, goes from step one, step two, step three, 
diverging is dated like temperature. You can have a plus and a minus in temperature, and that's a diverging. Categorical is you've gone to the market and you've got a bunch of different fruits and vegetables, and you want to do a visualization of that particular thing, and that's categorical colors. So the subway charts, subway diagrams are categorical. So those are kind of the three area ones that you sort of put together and you want to develop. Those are the classic color schemes for data visualization. So you want to choose which particular way your data is set up as to how you want to colorize it. Because a diverging color scheme can actually be two sequential color schemes put together if you want to, if you want to look at it that way. So you could have what I, I told you about, the monochromatic, how it goes from a light blue to a dark blue, and then you could have it go. We did it in the presidential elections. Then we go from to do the, that would be your Democratic, and then for your Republican, you would go from a light red to a dark red, depending on how, how the state went. You know, let's, let's imagine we're doing the United States and we want to discuss um, how the voting went. And if you wanted to depict that, if it was definitely a, a red state, you do that. You hear them on the news all the time talk about, oh, it's a red state and right. it's a blue state. <laughs> Somebody was sitting there doing those visualizations and they were using sequential color maps to get all that particular element right. So that's one thing you want to check the nature of your data. Now, I put in one in my color rules that's very important that I want to highlight here, and that is color deficiency. One of my first scenarios was I did this beautiful visualization of how deep the water was in Lake Erie, and I thought it was just so beautiful and had line diagrams. It was a green background, and I did magenta line coverage. Well, guess what? My scientist was red, green, colorblind. (laughs) And he couldn't see the magenta. He couldn't see it at all. So I had to redo it in blue. Now, I did this very early. I did it in the early 1990s. Today, there's this tool called Coblis, Color Blindness Simulator, that you can get and you can run your visualization through it. And you really want to see what it looks like in terms of that and how people are interpreting it. And what you'll find is in a lot of situations, people don't see the differentiations of the colors that if you don't have a color deficiency that that is seen. So that's probably one of the most important things. And I try to tell people that. So don't do what I did. (laughs) Do what I say. Don't do what I did. (laughs) Yeah, I think that these color perceptions are more prevalent than people realize. And understanding, I I love Coblis. I also use contrast checkers to make sure that everything feels like it will be readable because if you have, I don't want to use the word normal, but I guess where you don't have something like that, it's very hard to understand what the world looks like, <laughs> you know, from different eyes. And we're just assuming, right? That's right. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. I can't know what another person sees and they can't know what I, we're assuming those simulators are using psychological tests. That's one of the things I cover in my courses I teach, I show. Now, remember, all this perceptual data is calibrated on some people's eyeballs. <laughs> right. they, assume, they assume some parameters. They did some tests beforehand, and they assume they had, unquote, normal vision. And there's a whole lot of different ways that these experiments are conducted and variables. And when you get into it, they go, wow. So we're assuming <laughs> 
everything worked out pretty good. Right. So it's important to ask, be mindful, but get the tools we need to ask, how else is this seen? Well, when most people are practicing visualization, they're not going to go and learn all the color stuff, <laughs> right. the theory that's behind it. They just want a tool. And that's what I recommend is, is to Copeless is a good one. It works out. That code is pretty much open source. So there are a lot of other tools that have it. Actually, a tool that I use a lot, Adobe Color, recently built in to it a color blindness checker that you can click on that particular option and it'll show you on the color wheel how close the colors are and that people can't who have a deficiency wow. can't tell the difference. And it's one of the nicest ones I like. And it will give you a recommendation as to how you can move your color around and repositioning it so that you might still maintain your color scheme, but the, your color deficiency person could still see it normally. So Wow, that is incredibly helpful. You know, the the color palette and explorer tools that I use most often are made by Canva. I'm not exactly sure that they have something that takes into account color blindness. So I'll definitely have to check out Adobe Color again. This is really new. Most people know Adobe Cooler was a, the original Adobe Color tool. Then they changed it. I was actually under the non-disclosure when they went from color.adobe.com. So they did a color. Then they eventually put in the color blindness simulator capabilities, probably in the summer of 2020. And I really, really like it because, so I run it through Copeless and that's great. But then, okay, give me some suggestions as to how I could change that color conflict I've got. And Adobe Color is one of the few that I know that gives you the ability to change it and move it around. I very And it's free. That's unique. Yeah. It's on the web and you can sort of do that. So it's nice. Excellent. So what are some of the other rules that you think are important for people to be mindful of? I have a whole list. I think you can post an article up there in the blog. So we have a whole paper that we did. I have the list. So, you know, what maybe I can speak to what you talk about in terms of the interactions of color in your data visualization. That one speaks to me. I'm curious about that. Okay. I'll be happy to talk about that. We developed that because actually there's a guy named Joseph Albers who did a book called The Interaction of Color. And it talks about how a color can change depending on the other colors that surrounds it. Mm. So, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, right. There's experiments you can do. Whereas you can put yellow sur and surround it by red and you're going to get a very different uh, perception of that yellow color than if you surrounded it by, by blue. It's, it gives you a whole different kind of perspective. And so we try to say some of the things that people don't think of at the last time in terms of doing their visualization is their background. Sometimes people pick a background color. You could try to make it neutral, but sometimes even a white color might not be the best color you want for your particular visualization. Maybe you could center it a gray, but then sometimes if you have the gray and you take a particular color scheme, it looks pretty different. And then some people are very bold and they put another color as their background color up against it. And so I would say that that's the trying to understand the interaction of color would be the ones that I think is very, very important. So that's how they interact with each other and those types of capabilities. Wow. There's so much to keep in mind from rather than just like make it gray and then use this color. You really have to think about, like you said, are people creating negative space effects by having a colored background and then something neutral as the actual object? And that can have strange effects on. I would say back to you on that. I've always said to people, 
get it right in black and white. If you know that it looks well in black and white, and then if your colors all fall apart, you can always do your, yeah, I still got your visualization. So get it right in black and white. And then once you just start to colorize, if things don't work out and you got a deadline, you still can kind of put the black and white. And most people take the black and white because a lot of people, when they go into publication, then they don't have to worry about what's going to happen with it. But because we're visualization practitioners, we're under deadlines. We've got to meet particular targets that are requested to do. So that's my approach in terms of practicing visualization. Get it right in black and white. Go ahead and do your colors. And uh, then if it doesn't happen to work out, you still got a visualization. You're okay. So you know that moment when your executives, your clients, peers, the annoying dude from accounting are all questioning the hours of work you put into slaving over your analytics reports, dashboards, and presentations? Well, after spending 12 years as a data analyst and marketer, I know that sinking feeling all too well. It felt like a tower of terror because it was almost like my job and credibility were in question. Well, I hate to tell you, but if your data isn't clean and accurate, they actually could be. Luckily, my friends at ObservePoint offer the perfect credibility proofing solution. ObservePoint gives data professionals confidence in their data and insights by automatically auditing your data collection for errors across your whole website, testing your most important pages and user paths for functionality and accurate data collection, and tracking your data quality and quality assurance progress over time. So don't let dirty data ruin your analytics street cred. Request your complimentary demonstration at www.observepoint.com slash Pika to learn more about ObservePoint's full data governance capabilities. Another one of your rules is to apply the color palette to your data set. So if people develop a color palette, what can they think about when they're actually applying it so that it serves the highest purpose of clear comprehension, right? Well, that's where I was talking about earlier, the sequential and diverging in terms of the data set. But I use an example I use very often, which is a hurricane visualization where I had to have the hurricane as a cyclone. I ended up putting it in purple, but I had to have the wind vectors for the meteorologist to stand out no matter what. And so we did the wind vectors in orange and the two kind of interact with each other. That's what I'm talking about with regards to applying it to your data set. Because you might not necessarily think that that's the kind, and you've got to see that hurricane develop and see whether the wind vectors maintain a contrast all the way through your data visualization. So especially in an animation sequence, that's where I'm talking about. Animation is one of the most scariest things in terms of colorization, because you can have something that looks really great as a static still image. A really great bar chart, but then the thing starts moving around and the colors start getting a little fuzzy. And then all of a sudden, what also happens, the color perception goes down with regards to your color deficiencies. That's where I say that you really have to sort of work your color. And then you're going to tweak. You might end up tweaking because I tweaked that particular hurricane visualization several times to get it exactly the way it could, it could do it. And that is also a matter of patience. Tweaking a, a visualization <laughs> is a matter of a great deal of patience because you want to see it over with. You say, it's done, I've done, I've done my way. But it's not exactly going the right, right, right way. 
Yeah, you want to feel like you've completed the job of making it universally understandable and that it's not compromised if you introduce another design element such as animation, which you don't think of how animation would shift how colors are presented. But see, but that's the interaction of color right there. Right, right. So you over time the anime and the data's changed. I see what you're saying. You've got yep. the data changing <laughs> and you've got the color scheme changing a little bit with the values because it cha- changes with the values. And so you really have to check it out. So that's that's what we're tra- sort of trying to say there. Yeah. And the, the last rule that I think is so relevant, especially for this audience where it's many data practitioners in companies with brand palettes and guidelines is to be aware of color conventions and definitions in your particular discipline. So I'd love to hear more about that. Well, we're talking about brand colors. There are some situations where you can't use a certain color. Because it, you know, it's not going to work for your. You've got to have your company brand maintained all the way through it, so you can't use. I talked to you. I just mentioned the Stanford colors. I don't know if people have ever looked at, but the Stanford tree is a Palo Alto green. I'm telling you this because I'm going to on April Fool's Day. I'm giving a talk at the Stanford uh, for the Stanford Alumni Association in North Carolina, and I've been looking at this. But the Palo Alto green, which is the actual complement to the Stanford red. Oh. And you'll see that that's in the design of the logo and those particular aspects with regards to the combination. Now, that works. But Stanford provides a series of recommendations of what colors you should put in it. Like they don't recommend that you put a particular orange in there with your particular brand because it doesn't look very good and it's not going to match at all. So companies put recommendations of what colors you should use. And if you go to their website, They'll give you an uh, suggestions of what colors you should use and what combinations work out. Somebody else has spent a lot of time doing that. So if you were developing a visualization that's going to talk about enrollments at Stanford University, you want to talk about what the freshman enrollment's all about and who got accepted, at what levels got accepted or whatever. You might have to go read those Stanford guidelines to know what kind of colors you need to put into your visualization. The same thing might be true If you're dealing with a company that, I don't know, you're dealing with a bank, Wells Fargo, and you want to present some of their data, and they've asked you to be sensitive to their color and their brand because they're going to put that visualization up on their website, need to go and research what kind of colors they've got and design your color map. Because you might think, oh, I think this is financial, and I think I'll put a nice blue. I've seen the Wall Street Journal do a nice little blue visualization. I think that'll work perfect but it might not work so good with Wells Fargo. They might not like it. So that's what I'm trying to understand the context and what's kind of going on with it. That makes complete sense. And there's an interesting effect also that I have found coming from that where sometimes data viz best practices dictate that depending on your culture, if you're trying to draw negative attention to something, you might use a deep red or something's positive and you use green for go. But often red is the brand color. So they're instructed to use that as a highlight color for data. But in terms of perception, it might be indicating that there's something wrong or negative there. So sometimes I think those wires can get crossed between brand identification and also the meaning, the perception that we hold of colors culturally. Right. And culturally, then if you're dealing with an international situation, 
you can pick up some cultural colors that have significance that we don't have that particular significance in whatever country we might be in. We might have a whole different feel if we transfer that visualization to another combination. Actually, I did that in terms of I shared an office with some people from the Arab world and I, I painted it yellow and they didn't care for the yellow I picked. It was not, it, it had a symbolism to them that they didn't like. <laughs> and I mean, I was totally clueless with regards to that. I, I didn't know. I learned a lot. It's a good experience, but you know that we can make those same mistakes in visualization. Absolutely. So you've actually been gracious enough to give us a sneak peek in an article that you're publishing in Medium on Nightingale next month, which it's March now, you've agreed to actually let us take a glimpse of it and show us what you're talking about. Article, it's called Harmonic Resolution. And what we're doing is in this article, I'm translating color harmony principles. So I talked about monochrome and analogous and those types of things. And then we're transferring that into data visualization colors. That's what this article is about. And I go through sequential. I cover that example I covered before. I mentioned in my discussion about how you can take a sequential color scheme. This is from color. Here's the example I showed you of the bar chart, a 2D stack bar chart. And with a sequential data set, you're getting the thing of the data progressing across. And then with an analogous data set, you're getting the feeling of just different data associated with particular regions of where the company is located. And so it shows how an analogous color harmony applied to the 2D stack bar chart is only going to see the specific region, the sales values in the particular region, whereas the sequential data set gives the illusion that the data is building up over top of each other over time. And there isn't a relationship. That relationship does not exist. Each region's data is independent of each other. I think I see what you're saying. And of course, we'll we'll be posting this so you guys can see, but we're looking at these two stacked vertical bar charts. So you're saying that perhaps the more accurate or one with more integrity is the one on the left where you don't have a graduating sequential color scheme? Ah, because I would have done it the way on the right. And what you're saying is there, it gives the impression that it's the same type of thing, but it's graduating in some way rather than being completely discrete. Right. See, region one is independent of region two, independent of region three, independent of region four. But it looks like the data is progressing over time and progressing across. They're interrelated to each other. When the situation is that each of these are separate data sets, individual for each region, and we're trying to see what the sales is like in those particular individual regions. And I'm saying the analogous more accurately says what's happened to the data. That's very interesting. And would the same thing go for a 100% stacked bar? Would you still get the same effect if you had a sequential palette? You could. I can't really say that without trying trying the data set itself. I don't want to really say that completely, but I'm a person that's off the cuff. I can visualize color, but I'm not sure what the interaction (laughs) between. That's why I wrote that in the rule. I'm not sure what the interaction is going to be in terms of when you get it into the visualization, which is why I wrote those rules. Because just because I can match some really nice colors together, I can have uh, some visualizations that are not very good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sure. No, that's definitely something I'll experiment with for sure. 
you can see that I'm, I'm very big on having a lot of integrity. But in this article, I show how the diverging color scheme and color brewer, a pink and yellow green, turns out to be a complementary color harmony. And you'll see I show that on the color wheel. I show that how these colors oppose each other, and I show that in a contrast. So they're complementary color harmonies. The easiest way to get a diverging color scheme is to have two complementary colors on the color wheel and put them together. But I also show in the article how in our culture, we like the red and blue in terms of describing the Democratic Party oh, yeah. and the Republican <laughs> Party. And I show how, well, that's a diverging color scheme. And this is a one that I did for a hurricane. So I also show that you don't have to, you just have to have two colors that are different from each other to make a diverging color scheme. So anyway, it's an interesting article where I try to relate. And then I do qualitative. I So this particular color scheme, by the way, is something that a lot of people like to use. It's one of the most treacherous ones to use for color deficiency. It will mm. fail a color deficiency test <laughs> okay. like anything. Here it is right here. You see, there's the color oh, deficiency wow. test. The qualitative color scheme. People, all of us like the qualitative color scheme. And since this is a podcast, I'll, I'll say to you, it's red, blue, and yellow with orange, green, and purple. If you combine those colors together and you have a color deficiency, three of the colors fall apart. So you can't tell the difference between the colors. And so if you make the visualization <laughs> according to that, you have something that if people have color deficiency, they can't tell the difference. That is amazing. You really have to see it because the main qualitative scheme that you're showing as color, you know, like, I hate to use the word normal, I'm trying to think of another word. But then you show these other examples of the various protonopia, deuteronopia, trinopia, and they just look like colors alternating. It's amazing. Right. It doesn't doesn't look like that. So the one of the most difficult challenges with all of this is it's very easy to do three different colors and four different colors. But once you get to five and above, to pass a color deficiency test is very hard. So it's the addition of colors that begins to, oh, right, because if you're encoding additional measures for distinction or, or categories for distinction using those additional colors, you run a higher risk of them looking the same as something else. Right. That's right. Wow. Wow. So you can get up to four. And, and what's really interesting is in terms of color harmony, I think artists knew this all along because color harmony doesn't go past four. We in visualization go past four quite often. But in terms of if you look at traditional color theory, it doesn't go past four. So I think a lot of these artists for a long time in their paints and their painting, they knew that people couldn't tell the difference between it. They didn't necessarily write it, but they knew it. And so they, they didn't go that far. So people trying to understand the subway map might be really <laughs> might be having a bit of a tough time. Well, those subway maps usually stay at about four. Oh, okay. I see. If you have four lines, but if you go up into six, you're going to get into some trouble. But if you look at most people, most designs, you'll find that most designers, they just don't write that down. They just don't <laughs> write down, oh, I'm only going up to four ranges. Or what you could do is you could start shading. So you can cross hatch or you can do back, you can go back up into the sequential type of focus by using different kinds of cross-hatching and shading of colors. So you double-encode it. What you do is if you do uh, cross-hatching and shading, and then you have different colors, people see the different shadings, and they go, oh, that's different. 
So they're not matching by color anymore. They're matching by the cross-hatching. Or you can add numbers. You can do all kinds of things to double encode your stuff. So you can have five different colors, but you're allowing the person who has a color deficiency to find that information out through another channel, shall we say, through another way of looking at it. I have a process for colorizing visualization. And this did not pass a color deficiency test. So I added numbers to it. So the person could say, oh, step one, step two, step three, step four, step five. Oh, okay. So I don't have to depend on, I'm not depending on the color. It's the only channel. That's how you get around it. Or you label the inside. If you've got a bubble chart, I've covered that in a prior Tableau article. You label the in each of the bubbles. So they refer to a particular, I did it by countries. So it says Japan. Now, if you had a color deficiency, it turns out the little balls that were Japan looked awful lot like the little balls that were Germany. But if I got them labeled, you know that it's Japan and Germany. <laughs> so, you know, that's how you get around it. Mm-hmm. And when you say color harmony, can you explain exactly what that means? Because you said you can't go past four colors in color harmony. Okay. Well, I'll explain a little history as to what the name means. Newton invented the color wheel. He's the one that took the color spectrum and put it into a circle. He related in his original article, he related color to music. And so that's where he came up with harmonizing. And he even has in his original article, his original diagram of the color wheel, basic various musical notations. Then it also turns out there was a whole group of people that believed that music and color could be combined together and relate in terms of harmony. So in terms of harmony, that's why they have this whole category called color harmony. Now, color harmony, it has different various, it is dependent on the color wheel. I'm trying to go back really to my article. I have the Newton, original Newton color wheel right here, and it's dependent on the color wheel. And you see how the values and how Newton had them divided all apart. Then what, what happened is over time, so we're down in the 1700s, then we go into the early 1700s, we go into the 1800s, and the artists began to redefine it, and they began to say, okay, if something is a cross, so if blue is a cross from orange, that's a complementary color. And so that's one kind of color harmony. If I take all of the different shades, tones, and tints of a given color, that's a monochromatic color harmony. If I take the colors that are next to each other, so we'll talk about the newt wheel, red, orange, and yellow, that's an analogous color harmony. So they defined all these different types of color harmonies. And then you can have a split complementary color harmony. You can have a, an analogous complementary color harmony, three analogous colors, and the color that opposes it on the color wheel is the complementary. So analogous complementary color harmony. So they developed all these various color harmonies based on this color wheel. And it depends on you could be in red, yellow, blue space, which is what painters are in when they paint, or red, green, and blue, which is what displays are about. That's red, green, and blue guns that are fired to give you the light. Red, green, and blue is based on light. Red, yellow, blue is based on paint. And so it depends. The color harmonies are the relationships on the color wheel. That's what I was going to say. They sound like actual relationships. Right. But it just turns out that a color geek like me would sit around and study it and discover that no one has written about 
a color harmony that had five different colors. Most of them go up to four. Now, there's nothing that says, as a matter of fact, it turns out there's a convention. If you look at these digital tools, these color tools, why is it Adobe Color shows five different colors? That's some convention. I don't know enough to know who came up with that convention when they first started to do it, but they came up with five colors. So now when you go into Adobe Color and you click on analogous, traditional color harmony gives three analogous colors. Adobe now gives five because digital, the code, you know, it's written code to figure it out. But I myself don't know why it came up with five. And maybe somebody listening to this podcast knows who did it. Maybe somebody's <laughs> Someone around out who, there. Knows, who knows why there's five particular colors. But traditionally, <laughs> analogous color scheme was only three. And so people didn't go beyond four different colors in their particular color combinations. Wow. All really, really fascinating. And I think all different ways for people to go in deep. I definitely suggest that they check out. Yeah, we'll make sure your article is posted in your book. And yeah, we'll go into our next segment. All right, so we've arrived at a segment called The Upgrade, which is a tool, a resource, a book, something that our guest, Teresa, thinks you are going to love or find really useful for checking out. So, Teresa, you mentioned, uh, I mean, a whole bunch of tools already, but I know that you mentioned the Pantone Connect tool. I don't know that we went deep into exactly what that tool does, but I'd love to hear more about it. Pantone Connect is a tool presently, it's freely available. We hope that they will not as we come out of the COVID arena that they will not start charging for it. But it is a tool that you can type in Pantone Connect. You can create your own account and you can move an image across like your visualization into Pantone Connect and you can get all the Pantone colors that the are inside the image. And where that becomes comes in handy is if you're going to print when you call up to your printer, you can call those Pantone colors and they could spot connect according to those particular values. So it's a very powerful tool. And that's one I really recommend that people try and look at because especially right now and the currency of this, because a lot of times Pantone has charged for these particular things. And we happen to have a window where it's got it free. So you can look at that because right now it costs quite a bit of money to get Pantone books and those particular things they want because they're a commercial company. So I'm recommending that people try Pantone Connect. You asked a tool right now, there's currencies to go at and try it and see whether you like it and see whether it's helpful to you and it's of value. You know, I find that useful because I am currently adapting my brand colors to my first book manuscript. And I'm very curious to see what those Pantone colors will translate to the book. Shameless plug, shameless plug. But I am interested because it's occurred to me that graphics I might create might not translate properly to a printed format. So I could see that being very useful. Yes, indeed. It's ex- extremely. Now, you know, that's what the pros do. The people who are involved with publishing your book, that's what they do. As a matter of fact, when I did my book, they were absolutely amazed. It turns out that there was a tool called My Pantone. And then when I did my book, it was Pantone Studio. Now it's become Pantone Connect. 
And the people involved with were absolutely amazed that I had covered that book, uh, that tool in the data visualization, oh. in a data visualization <laughs> book and had emphasized that. Oh, very cool. All right. So we have arrived at our final wildcard question. So think very hard and imagine this very plausible scenario. You're at the Summer Ambi Swing Showdown, rocking the Charleston and the Coaster Step. I actually know what those are. <laughs> when you suddenly trip and fall into a vortex that pulls you back to the moment you're about to deliver your first presentation. If you can remember, what are you presenting about and what advice would you give to yourself? Okay. I actually remember what my first major presentation was. It was at ACM SIGGRAPH. And I presented on environmental sciences visualization. And what I would tell me from back then is don't worry about your knees vibrating and moving around. That's what podiums are oh. for. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. if you, and if you want to deal with your audience, get up and start walking around. They'll think you're really cool. But what you're really doing is the fact your knees are vibrating and you're very nervous. But what I would tell myself back then is you'll be really cool with your audience if you get away from the podium and put on a lavalier mic and start walking around the audience, they'll think, oh, you're so wonderful. And the fact is you're nervous is all anything. That's what I would tell myself. Because today I do that. And everybody thinks, oh, man, she's so cool. She gets away from the podium and she walks <laughs> in with the audience. But the truth is my knees quiver. <laughs> and if I'm walking around. Nobody notices that my knees are Right, right. They'll only see if you're standing still. Yeah, you know, I really resonate with that because I have a deep background in musical theater, but the game totally changed the first few times I delivered a keynote during a conference session with my own content, my own script. You know, it's really you up there, not you portraying someone else's work. So I remember one of my favorite people in the field, Jim Stern, noticed that I had this sort of white knuckle grip on the podium because I wanted to focus on being present and being steady. But then you're right. It's really kind of liberating to sort of challenge yourself to move out from that. And in that challenge, you find like, oh, the water is not so bad. And then it feels quite natural to move around. So I love that advice. <laughs> well, I, I always laugh when people give me, you know, all these, oh, I just love the fact she interacts with the audience. <laughs> I feel if you only, it's because I can't stand up at the podium. <laughs> I will collapse if I stand still. <laughs> I'm like a but shark. I, I, had, I had to learn that. So that's what I would tell myself. But thank you very much for that dance analogy. I want to just add we're ending. But, you know, through COVID, I've gotten all my vaccinations and passed my incubation period. And I'm going dancing for the first time oh. in over a year tonight. And oh, I'm excited. Amazing. I'm so excited about it. So. Oh, I can imagine. I used to dance swing a long, long time ago, but I dance hip hop and just more ecstatic dance more frequently, more freeform. And I do miss it terribly. So hopefully that's in the cards for me soon, too. But I can appreciate that. And I wish you an amazing time tonight. Thank you. So unfortunately, our time has run out. This was such an amazingly insightful conversation. So please tell the listeners where they can keep up with you. Nightingale, 
watch me on Nightingale. I'm going to still write and publish. As a matter of fact, I know what my next article is after Harmonic Resolution. It's going to be on Hue, Chroma, and Luminance. That's a particular color model. Watch that. And uh, I try to publish. It used to be about every month. It'll probably be every other month. Watch that. And I also have a Twitter. I have a blog where I do a color study every day. And follow me at TM Ryan on Twitter and see what I'm doing as my latest color study. Perfect. Well, this was so insightful. And I really, I plan on following your work because I'm such a color nerd myself. And all of the links that you mentioned, your book, your article, everything will be on the show notes page for this episode. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. And I really hope our paths cross again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I loved it. It's terrific. All right. Thank you so much for listening to that. That was such a fascinating interview. I absolutely love color as a thing in general, but I especially love learning all of the ways it can be used to sharpen and really refine your communication practices. To catch all of the links, resources, register for conferences, everything, visit the show notes page at leahpeekacom slash 070. Be sure to drop a comment or suggestions. Give a shout out on LinkedIn or Twitter if you love the show. I would love to hear the kinds of topics or challenges you're facing when presenting your valuable data stories. And please, if you like what you've heard, I highly encourage you, take a moment right now if you're listening on your iPhone and you're in podcasts, Go and click that follow or subscribe button and please leave a rating and review. Ratings and reviews are so appreciated because they let me know that I'm on the right track for you and it helps get this information out to practitioners like you. I'm on Spotify too, so hit that follow button to make sure. No excuses to miss an episode. And I'll leave you with today's presentation inspiration by the one and only Stephen Few. And it's from his Data Viz Bible, Show Me the Numbers, where he discusses the use of color as a tool, not a decoration. And that is visual perception evolved in a way that makes us particularly aware of differences, i.e., features that stand out in contrast to the rest. When we look at something, our eyes are not only drawn to differences, but our brains insist on making some sense of those differences. Contrast is most effective when only one thing is different in a context of other things that are the same. As the number of differences increases, the degree to which those differences stand out decreases. If you try to emphasize so many things that emphasis becomes the rule rather than the exception, your message will become buried in visual clutter. When everyone in the room shouts, no one can be heard. Yeah, that pretty much sums up visual design in data communication for me. Color is just one of the myriad of tools that are at our disposal to create emphasis and guide the attention of our viewers. But when we use all of them to overlap differences and contrast and communicate differences, nothing stands out. So really wise words, and I hope this episode helped point you to a couple new strategies for using color as a tool for emphasis. 
That's it for today. Remember to hop on my book waiting list to get all of the new updates over the next few months at leahpika.com slash the book. Stay well, stay safe, and namaste. Namaste.